on this episode of Sex and Healing. Again, when you're living in alignment, when you're doing the thing that your soul is here to do, all your needs will always be met. All of the resources the universe needs for you to get into your own personal alignment will be provided. (laughs) So it might not be stable and secure. It might not look like what you know now, but our perception of stability and security is the most important thing. So it's not about not having fear. Again, it's about our relationship to fear. So now I know when life is pushing me in one of those crazy directions and I'm shit scared, something awesome is on the other side and I will never let that fear hold me back. Never, 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 never. And then you kind of merge into one and then you can end up dressing the same and talking the same and looking the same and brushing your teeth with the same toothbrush and it's like you've lost that polarization. You need someone to hold that masculine polarity, that need for freedom, or you need to build it into your relationship that there is enforced freedom and enforced space so that you desire to come back together and to merge. So when we talk about the shadow, it's a part of the psyche that we learned from childhood that the world shouldn't see because we'll lose love. A lot of that was my subconscious protecting me from actually accepting that it is who I am and what I want. It's a lot of society stories telling us that if people want those perverted things then they must be really fucked up and it must be a sign of them being damaged. I'm triggered as fuck by other masochists. Like, I can't help but judge someone that identifies as that. Hello and welcome back to the Sex and Healing Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Kiner, and thank you so much for joining me as we take a wild ride together through the realms of sex and healing. I feel like I haven't recorded a podcast in nearly two weeks, so that has actually been a beautiful feeling to really, really anticipate being back and recording content for you and sharing some wild and crazy stories that inevitably is happening in my life in the space of two weeks. But today we're going to be diving into our first Q&A session. So I have received some amazing questions in life in general from friends and from followers and from clients. So we'll be diving into some of those. And as always, I fucking love questions. So please, if you ever have something in your mind that you're curious about or that you don't understand, I would love to hear what that is so that I can help provide answers for you, but also that we can use that for others to be of service. So let's have a look at what our first questions for today are. I'm going to put these two questions together because although they sound quite different, I think the principles can be very, very similar. How can I truly believe in myself and my own skills and abilities to pursue my dreams? And how do you let go of the fear of not having a stable and secure income? So essentially, these questions are both about overcoming our own internal limitations. So what I can identify in these questions is that there are limitations in the level of belief that you might hold towards yourself or your skills and abilities. And there's limitations around what what it means to be stable and secure financially or uh, even the concept that you need to be stable and secure financially to be able to achieve X. So no matter what limitation is inside of us, it's all an illusion. <laughs> we are actually infinitely expanding beings with infinite potential inside of us 
But part of the human experience is to come and experience our own limitations. It is to have these adversities to work, uh, to overcome in order to experience our capacity. So the only way in which we can learn that we're strong is by giving ourselves a test of trying to lift something perhaps, like going to the gym and lifting something and you're like, yes, look, I've got strength and I've got this much strength. But at the moment I can only lift this much, but I want to get to the point where I lift this much. So how do we do that? We continue to expose ourselves to the opposite of strength, which is essentially the weakening of our muscles. We go to the gym, we push ourselves into that adversity, we weaken our muscle, and that in turn will then make us stronger and stronger and stronger. And the more you come up against that adversity, the stronger and stronger and stronger you get. So life gives us these opportunities and these things to work against in order to experience our capacity or our potential. So we can't go through life without limitations, but we can be committed to constantly overcoming them, knowing that they're never going to stop, knowing that this work never ends. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> but then I'm not sorry to say, because if that work never ends, that means that our potential never ends either. So number one, I want to say expect limitations within yourself expect things to overcome and be excited to recognize that there are limitations and things to overcome because that's going to lead you into more potential if you choose to address it and now not everyone wants to do that and that's fine some people like to stick their head in the sand this lifetime and just take the safe road not really expanding not really challenging themselves not really leaving their comfort zone and that's absolutely fine that's absolutely not the path for me. <laughs> this is a massive discerning factor for me as to who I get into relationships with, whether that be intimate relationships or friendships or client relationships, like this particular quality of the fearlessness and the courage to go within and look at this stuff is absolutely pivotal for me with the people that I choose to surround myself with, because it is somewhat rare, but those humans that have it are exceptional humans. Hey, everyone has it. <laughs> it's just how much they choose to take action on that. So when we look at changing beliefs or changing limitations, we have to kind of recognize what it is. A belief or a thought is simply a neural pathway in the brain. And it's a neural pathway that has been fired so many times, a thought that you've had so many times that it becomes a belief. And those beliefs are, beliefs are stored in our subconscious. So they're operating behind the scenes without us having any awareness of it. So if you imagine it and remember the first time that you learned to drive a manual car and you get in the car and all you can think about, and maybe an automatic as well, but you get in and you think, oh my God, like, hold on, one foot on the clutch, no foot on the accelerator, the gear in gear, like put the gear stick in gear, check my mirrors, indicate, start to accelerate, take my foot off the clutch. Like you're thinking consciously, about so many different things, but you just keep having lesson after lesson after lesson. And eventually you get to the point where you get in the lesson that you start the car and you drive to the end of the street. And then you're like, fuck, I just did that. <laughs> I just did that. I didn't have to think about it anymore. So that conscious repetitive thought dropped into your subconscious and then was operating on your behalf without you having to think about it. So that can be a very beneficial thing, like learning to drive a car, and it can be a very destructive thing because you can have things operating in your subconscious that are working against you and you don't even need to think about it. You're not even conscious that you're thinking those things and you've got these repetitive thoughts and beliefs going on. 
So we want to basically rewrite that belief. So this is a twofold process. One, we need to disempower the original belief that we have, and we need to empower a new belief that we choose. So the deeper the belief is, and, you know, like if we look at Vedic literature, they talk about samskaras, which are these grooves in our consciousness, which actually quite relates to neuroplasticity plasticity and having these grooves inside of us, these neural pathways, but they are, you can modify them. It's just the deeper that belief is and the longer that you've held it. And however many lifetimes you've been working on that particular thing, it can be very, very deeply ingrained, which can make it a bit harder for some than others. And that's okay. And that's also the beauty of being human. So the first thing you want to do is identify that you've got these fears in place. You want to be able to replace that with a new belief. So you need to think of what would be a more empowering belief and not something that's so far away that it feels so fucking untrue because your subconscious will block that. But you want to think about the next positive step forward. You want to find the evidence that supports that belief. So essentially you need to discount, discredit the previous belief. So if you don't believe that you have enough skills and abilities to pursue your dreams, that's a belief that's been running through your mind for however long. You want to be able to say, well, actually, let me find the evidence to my brain where I have had skills and abilities, where I have pursued my dreams, where I have been able to start something new and my skills and abilities have continued to grow. And then that evidence starts to make the old belief false and starts to amass evidence for your new belief. So one of uh, a tool that I use every single day actually is that I sit with my morning coffee and my journal and I work out what is the limiting belief that's popped up for me almost present right now. Do I feel safe? Am I scared that I'm going to be abandoned in my relationship? Am I feeling fear? Am I not feeling desired? Like these are the things that pop up and make me feel triggered. And so I sit there over coffee and I think, okay, well, what's 15 pieces of evidence to know that I am desired? What's 15 pieces of evidence to know that my partner's not going to abandon me? What's 15 pieces of evidence that I am safe in my relationship? So if you want to work on the one belief, you just do that every single day for at least 21 days. They say that creating new habit in the brain is 21 days. Other scientific sources say it's 60. The longer, the better. <laughs> the deeper that old belief is, the more work you have to do to counterbalance it. But you want to be consciously and consistently looking for the new evidence, choosing those thoughts repetitively. Every time you notice that old fear pop up is to just choose your new thought and start to ingrain that in the subconscious, just like learning to drive the car. And one day, ultimately, it's going to be working for you. So regardless of what the limitation is, that is the principle that, yes, you're limited. You're per you perceive yourself to be limited. That is normal. That is human. That is to be expected. And you've got the power to change these beliefs about yourself and to consistently grow and evolve. So now that I've talked about the principles, let's dive into these just a little bit. How can I really truly believe in myself and my own skills and abilities to pursue my dreams? So my belief is that our dreams come from this pure, innocent part of us that is still connected to source. The reason that it's your dream is because there's something inside of you that knows that you're here to do that. Quite often people's ideas of what their life should look like is very, very influenced by society and expectations and family and all of these things. So our job is to clear all of that and get to really get to the source of who we are and what we want to do on the planet. And then just know that the whole reason for you to be here is to do that thing on the planet. And every source 
the entire universe wants you to do that thing. (laughs) No one can do that thing the way that you can do that thing. So all the support you need comes in and all of the opportunities you need arrive on your lap when you just start heading in that direction. The skills and abilities are things that evolve and grow. If you haven't pursued that dream, then how could you have skills and abilities in that? You need to know that actually just applying yourself to that, learning, trialing, experiencing other things that develop skills and abilities. So no one's going to be the best life coach when they just start a coaching practice. No one's going to be the best yoga teacher when they just start doing their yoga teacher training. But we all place ourselves under those expectations. But if you can drop that and say, yeah, I don't know yet. I don't know that I have skills and abilities, but I know myself and I know that I learn and I know that I can learn and I know that I have passion. So I'm going to move in the direction of my dreams and then just know that life supports you. And so having to let go of the fear of not having a stable and secure income can be so, even though these two questions came from two different people, they're so entwined because often it is that belief of not having a stable and secure income that makes people not want to pursue dreams or not want to step outside of the comfort zone. But again, when you're living in alignment, when you're doing the thing that your soul is here to do, all your needs will always be met. All of the resources the universe needs for you to get into your own personal alignment will be provided. (laughs) So it might not be stable and secure. It might not look like what you know now, but our perception of stability and security is the most important thing. And if we're placing that outside of ourselves, so one person might need to make $10,000 a month in order to feel stable and secure. And someone else might need to make $100,000 a month to feel stable and secure. It's not actually the money. It's our perception of those things that brings us the feeling. So you need to find that feeling of stability and security inside of you. And that can come from starting to develop your trust. So rather than going, okay, I've had a full-time corporate career for the last 10 years, I've been climbing the corporate ladder and now I'm going to let all of it go and take a giant leap and go and be an entrepreneur for the first time ever. And I'm going to move to a country where I know no one and be a digital nomad. I'd say that's not really a wise choice (laughs) because that's a huge step from your current reality to where you're wanting to head. So I recommend taking small steps in that direction and start to develop those muscles, start to get the evidence of the new experiences and your confidence in that will grow and grow and grow. So just take tiny little steps towards your dreams, trust that you will be guided you feel that illumination, something lights you up so much in that direction. You just need to take one step. And when you get to that step and you do that thing that was guided, then sometimes you turn 180 degrees and the next step is in a completely different direction from where you thought you were going. But that's exactly what happens. You just need to go one step. You get the information that's there. You have the experience that you need to have. And the next step appears and the next step appears. And it's never what you think it is. (laughs) And you don't want to have control, trust me, because if you hand over control to the divine intelligence that coordinates this entire freaking universe of which we are a tiny fucking speck, there are forces and intelligences far greater than the human mind. And if you can align yourself with that and let life carry you and trust life, then it works out more miraculously than what you could have ever created on your own. So I would say develop the trust and the surrender by taking little steps and taking little risks to follow your heart. And then it will start to unfold so beautifully that you will believe in that guidance. You will be excited to take the next step. There's always fucking fear. Always do not expect no fear. Do not think that 
No fear is a sign that that thing is for you. Stepping into the unknown is always scary. So it's not about not having fear. Again, it's about our relationship to fear. So now I know when life is pushing me in one of those crazy directions and I'm shit scared, something awesome is on the other side and I will never let that fear hold me back. Never, 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 never. I don't care how scared I am, how anxious I am, how uncertain I am when I feel life pushing me in that direction. I will always, always, always take it and I have been rewarded beyond my wildest dreams. All right, so let's have a look at our next question. Now, this is a really interesting one to me. I love diving into these topics. And this one might go a little bit deep. So let's begin. What are your views on same-sex DS relationship and role swapping, or is this not achievable? Is it better for one to be more dominant and the other to be more submissive, or is it completely fine to vary it from time to time? Is this a circumstance where polygamous relationships is sought after to achieve these needs? My partner is very open-minded and we're a Cancer and Scorpio relationship, which is fucking amazing. We communicate and express and work as one. We've talked about others, but I don't feel the need to venture openly right now with our amazing relationship, family, and a new baby on the way, but have openly spoken about down the track. Would love to hear your thoughts. Yes, I feel that we're both more submissive, but we can both be flexible to meet each other's needs. I'm definitely a masochist and she definitely isn't into it, but she's not completely a sadist and is happy to take on that role when required to make me happy. So this is a very cool question. (laughs) And I come at it from an experience of being in a long-term same-sex relationship and from being in a 24-7 DS relationship. And it might be different from what people might answer if they had different backgrounds. So I'm not saying that my answer is the complete answer, but this is what I have to offer. So the fact that both partners have access to both the dominant and submissive energy inside of them, even though they're both more submissive, makes for a fantastic environment. That means that they are switches. And switches mean that I would identify as a switch, even though I call myself mostly submissive, there is definitely a dominant part of me, but it requires certain circumstances to bring that out. So the most important thing when we're dealing with uh, same-sex relationships or uh, where we've got two people who mostly identify as submissive is to be able to really slide along the spectrum of those energies and move as far away from each other as they possibly can, because the more of a polarized energy you can create, the more power there is to be exchanged in a DS dynamic. So I think it's fantastic because you can both get your needs met. You can both be of service to each other in meeting the other one's needs. But the most important thing here is always going to be communication. So if one person is providing the dominance more than what they're getting their submissive needs met, that's going to be a very depleting and unsustainable situation to be in. So being able to communicate about your needs, being able to communicate about your desires, being flexible and willing to ensure that you're both getting your needs met individually and as a couple is paramount. In the majority of BDSM negotiations, it's most likely that people would agree to being one role for the duration of that scene. So tonight, baby, I'm going to be dominant. I'm going to offer you the chance to be submissive. What do you want to experience? Blah, 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 blah. And you'd stay in that energy. 
But when we're talking about long-term relationships and when we're talking about a deep intimacy built between two people, sometimes it's actually okay to flip between the two energies in scene when that's when you know that that might be something to expect. If it's unexpected and and not consented to, then that is not a good situation. But when I think about my own situation with my lover who is dominant and not submissive in any way but allows me to experience my dominance and gives me space to explore that energy and pushes me <laughs> pushes me in that direction and and develops me and my dominance in that direction I enjoy it I expand into it I feed on his dominance to become more dominant myself and then I'm just like ah <laughs> put me back in my place now please oh, and I just want to be dominated again to just know that I'm safe and know that this is where I belong and oh, I have my place and actually I'm not the one in charge but in other circumstances I've found that certain people start to naturally draw out my dominant energy and I want to be the dominant one and I want to be the one that creates the container and I want to be the one that offers the submissive that space and I I love that energy I had actually been considering that I wasn't fed enough by dominance to want to take a dominant role but actually what I'm discovering is that there's always a way for you to express it, to find your own style of dominance or your own style of submission where you can be fulfilled. It doesn't have to look like anything else. It doesn't have to be the textbook uh, DS dynamic. It's about understanding yourself. It's about exploration and learning and communication and then finding where's that common ground that we can exist so it's absolutely possible in a same-sex DS relationship that's not open, even with both identifying as more submissive, to be flexible and to switch to meet each other's needs and to enjoy that. So uh, one of them identifying as a masochist and the other isn't. And the partner not completely identifying as being a sadist but is happy to take on that role, that is what we might call being a service top. It's like I... And being of service to you in this way because I see how it fulfills you. And that's part of my love for you is to be of service. So when I look at the, there's just so many variations that are available. And when I look at my partnership and obviously we're poly, so it's not about just the two of us. And there'll be times when we take other lovers into scenes with us. So say we were to have another female lover, there are so many combinations that could happen in this dynamic, there could be uh, both of us being submissive to him. There could be me being submissive to him, but dominant to her, him being dominant to both of us. It could be both she and I serving him while he still held the dominance. It could be her and him dominating me. It's just this beautiful spectrum and a beautiful playground. And you just need to find what feels right, what feels fulfilling what excites both of you and that's just comes down to communication and experience so I say play with it increase that polarization as much as you can as often as you can because that polarization is going to draw you guys together like a magnet it's going to create that magnetism what I see commonly in same-sex uh, 
relationships is that it can become this merging. So let me talk about female same-sex relationships because that's obviously where I get my experience. (laughs) But what can happen is like the feminine wants love. It wants to move towards the other. It wants to devote towards the other all the time. And the masculine wants freedom. And when those two things balance each other out, it's really, really healthy. (laughs) But if you get two people that are too feminine, that are in that love space, you just draw together without enough freedom and you kind of merge into one. And then you can end up dressing the same and talking the same and looking the same and brushing your teeth with the same toothbrush. And it's like you've lost that polarization. You need someone to hold that masculine polarity, that need for freedom, or you need to build it into your relationship that there is enforced freedom and enforced space so that you desire to come back together and to merge and not just go into one neutralized energy. (laughs) The other thing that I see in uh, female same-sex relationships is that the emotionality can become so intense. So when you've got a feminine and a masculine partner and the feminine is getting too lost in the emotions, it's the masculine that can pull her out of it or put a stop to it, will not engage or feed it. But when we've got two emotional bodies together, and one's emotion starts going off and that draws in the other one or the other one can't help but react with emotions, then we're on this like nonstop back and forth emotional merry-go-round where no one's going to get off and no one's going to stop it. And like it's just it can be so emotional and so unproductive. So, again, how can we balance that in female same-sex relationships? It's about establishing things in place to prevent these things from happening. So, you can have agreements is that when when I go into my emotions, baby, I need you to just hold space. Don't buy into it. Don't try and defend yourself. Like I know that my emotions are heightened at that time. I'm going to do my best to express them in a healthy way, but let's only aim to resolve our problems from a neutral space. And that if one of us gets into emotions, the priority is to just feel seen, feel heard, to express it, but not resolve from that place. So if you go into emotions, I'll hold space for you. If I go into emotions, I need you to do your best to hold space for me. And then hopefully neither of us, well, both of us don't jump on that merry-go-round at the same time because no one's getting us off and the emotions are unending. (laughs) Just taking a little pause in our chat here to share with you about our amazing sponsor, Maeve. There is no shame in your pleasure. In fact, it is about time that your sensual satisfaction becomes part of your everyday health routine. Maeve, the app is a whole audio library of sexy stories, guided sessions, and sound experiences created by top-notch writers and experts in orgasmic living and brought to life by the most sultry voices and soundscapes. Fresh audios to explore your self-pleasure, but also to spice up your intimacy with your partner are added weekly. Use the code ERIN20 to get 20% off your yearly subscription. Details can be found in the show notes. Now let's get back to it. So the next question was a really, really interesting one that came from the previous podcast that I had recorded talking about the going into the slave space, going into the unworthiness and all those other beautiful things that happened. And so the question was, 
on the presumption that I, Erin, put a lot of those aspects of myself into my shadow, are those really blissful sexual experiences, me going into my shadow and being in there and finding my erotic self in the shadow? Or is that transcendent blissful high because my sexuality is no longer in my shadow anymore? Did it feel like you're moving through into shadow with more confidence and your erotic pleasure exists there or that it's been brought into the light? So when we talk about the shadow, it's the part of the psyche that we learnt from childhood that the world shouldn't see because we'll lose love. So, for example, if you had a really messy room and you are just playing as a kid and having a good old time being creative, not having a care in the world, and a parent comes in and tells you off because you're so messy and your room is a mess and now you're not going to, you're in timeout until you clean your room, you all of a sudden equate me being messy means that I'm not going to be loved. So you put that in the shadow and you try not and let, you try to not let the world see that you're messy. So as an adult, if that's still there, then people are coming over to your house and you're like, oh my God, I've got to be clean. I've got to be tidy. Don't let them see this. If they saw this and they're not going to, they're going to think differently of me. So that's an example of part of the shadow and our work and journey of empowerment is to reclaim that shadow, to go into those parts of ourselves and to recognize them as whole, as lovable, as worthy. And the more of our shadow we reclaim, the more power that we have. So our shadow isn't just our bad qualities. There's a lot of people who also disown some of their nice or light qualities. So there are some women who have created the persona or the identification identification of being a bitch. And so in their shadow is softness, is tenderness, is innocence. They don't want the world to see that. They can only let the world see them as tough and strong and empowered and masculine. So their journey to wholeness is to actually go into the shadow and embrace the parts of them that are sensitive and soft and tender, for example. You might hear the wind in the background, and I do apologize because for whatever reason it is crazy windy, which is not the season in Bali to be windy, but it is what it is. So hopefully that rattling is not too loud in the background for you. So this question about my sexuality, have I gone into that shadow to experience that bliss and then I return, or have I brought that bliss out of the shadow and it's now part of who I am? And I really have pondered this question for a while and I spoke to my lover about this question also to get more insight. And for me, I think that there is not such a strict delineation between in my shadow and out of my shadow and that it's more so I have this spectrum of light and dark and that I can journey amongst all of that without shame and these blissful experiences have happened to me both in the darkest of the darkest of the darkest shadow and in the lightest of the lightest of the lightest love. But wherever I have these experiences, I'm changed. So I then carry that with me no matter where I'm traveling along my spectrum or, or throughout life. And I remember saying to my godmom in Hawaii, where does my wisdom sit? <laughs> Because I know that consciousness is eternal and I know that when this body passes that my consciousness remains and that I will be returning into another lifetime. But like I was thinking very practically and tangibly, like 
how does that consciousness retain wisdom? Because I know it does, but knowledge, I think, now sits in my big fat brain, but I won't have my brain anymore. So where is that knowledge? And she said to me, oh, no, my darling, (laughs) you don't gain wisdom. You simply reach out and make contact with that part of your soul that already knows. So I love that because that talks to us on this human experience, also being on a spectrum of incredibly individuated human to the other end of the spectrum, which is oneness, where we all exist. So as we evolve, we're moving along our spectrum of individuation because that's undeniable. Here I am as a separate human being, very, very separate from you listening to this podcast wherever in the world that you are. But we also know that the truth of oneness exists and actually can now be scientifically proven. So how can it be that we're both humans and individuated and both that we're one? And it's this idea of the spectrum where everything. So here we are in the individuated experience. And as we evolve, we get closer and closer and closer and have deeper and deeper experiences of our oneness and the commonality between us and, and like the union of ourselves and the world around us and of nature and of wisdom. We reach higher and higher states of consciousness and higher and higher states of understanding. So at the other end of your spectrum, your soul knows everything and has experienced everything. It, it just is in the everything. <laughs> so what we're doing is we're, we're going along that spectrum to learn more about ourselves. So I feel like these experiences, although they might be in the perceived shadow or they're in the dark end of my spectrum, either way, it's changing my conscious, consciousness. It's changing who I am. And I carry that with me all the time as I continue to slide up and down along my spectrum. So bliss is available to us in all moments, in all ways, at all times, and is not so dependent on it. And sometimes we might look like going into the shadow and that's part of the eroticism. Let's go and do something naughty. Let's go and do something forbidden. I actually fucking love doing the really naughty forbidden things. Love them. So I want the naughtiness. I want the naughtiest, naughtiest of naughtiest things. So in order to have that, I need to put that in a forbidden realm in order for it to be forbidden. But then there's other times when you're in that space and you're making it so perfect and so okay. So it's just one giant paradox, really. (laughs) But I hope that answers the question. So another question I got was in response to the podcast that I did about consent and about the consent breach that I experienced. And she said, well, yes, isn't it more likely that you would experience people who want to cross your boundaries in kink than outside of kink? And I can understand that question a lot. I can really understand that presumption that kink is for the people that want those kind of things. And my answer was absolutely fucking not. It is far more likely that you will experience people who cross your boundaries, who don't respond, who do not follow consent protocol in the normal dating world. I guarantee if I went out and this is never going to happen, but I slept with 10 what I call Changu fuckboys. <laughs> because here in Changu we have this typical dating scene that is renowned for casual disconnected encounters that are not 
with emotionally unavailable men. So I would never go and sleep with them. But if you imagine that I went and had 10 of those experiences, it's likely that nearly every single one of those would not contain consent. And I would feel like something is being taken of me from me or someone wants something from me that I don't want to give or we could be drunk and things could happen to me that I don't know what would be happening because that is very, very, very typical. What we see in the kink community is ownership of personal responsibility, protocols, rules are in place. So in some ways, the people that want to cross your boundaries, the people in kink that want to cross your boundaries, they want to cross your boundaries in a consensual way. If that's a desire that they have to recreate a scene, which we would call consensual non-consent, if they want to hear you say, no, 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 please don't stop and emphasize that energy, it's because ultimately this is a consensual experience and you both want to experience that. But you're experiencing that within a safe framework where it's pre-agreed to what you want and what you don't want. It's pre-agreed to that they will not stop when you say no and that there's another safe word in place, whether it's a word, whether it's an action, like there are so many things to prevent it going beyond your boundaries. So it kink is actually one of the safest, most sex positive environments to have sexual experiences in my personal opinion, because it is free of shame. It is full of great communication. It is full of boundaries and limits and negotiations and a community of people who should be keeping an eye out for each other. They vet people before they become part of the community. So you have multiple people assessing this person's state of mind, this person's intentions. So actually, if you pass all of those things in the community, you're really eliminating the the chance of problems. So I'm all for sex positivity. I'm all for uh, the freedom of sexual expression in a consensual way. And kink is just an amazing place to experience all of that. And for our final question today, this is again about the realms of kink. And it is not the clearest cut question and understandably so, but let's dive into it and see what we can pull out of it. It says, I don't know. It's like, it's not really a sphere I like to discuss. I don't really know what it is, but it feels dirty in some way, but deeper than that. It's like an inner judgment too. When my mind is finally open and I'm totally accepting of what all people do, but then I judge it and I say, oh, well, that's just part of their psyche, it's that they're using their sexuality to play out that old and dis, it's a dysfunction, those old stories in some way. I don't know how to explain it. It's just really distorted. I don't know. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I understand because guess what? I'm that person too. <laughs> I am that person that had such deep, complex judgments and misunderstanding around it and rejection of it. A lot of that was my subconscious protecting me from actually accepting that it is who I am and what I want. It's a lot of society stories telling us that if people want those perverted things and they must be really fucked up and it must be a sign of them being damaged. And in fact, this comes from the medical history, the medical system, where it all a lot of things were diagnosed as a psychiatric disorder. Masturbating was illegal 
oral sex was illegal. <laughs> like no, homosexuality was something to be locked up for. So there is a massive, massive, massive misunderstanding about sexuality that has been embedded in the consciousness of humans for the last hundred or however long years, like since the age of modern psychology or the movement of psychology and the understanding of ourselves and even Freud, there's just this massive misunderstanding that's in our minds. So of course we judge it. Of course we misunderstand it. Um, The mainstream psychological movement, religions and church and societies have all made sex something that is bad and wrong unless it's for procreation. So it is very normal to start exploring inside of yourself and come across very complex, very murky, misunderstood thoughts or feelings that don't even have words. They might just have feelings with them and it makes you feel gross or it makes you feel shameful or it makes you feel judgment. So that is completely, completely normal. So the part of the question that's like I judge it and I think that it's just part of their psyche and they're just playing out a dysfunction Well, we do have scientific evidence now and scientific journals that can say that, and I'm going to dive into this in another podcast episode in in more depth because I think it's really powerful, that there are no higher numbers of sexual, like childhood sexual abuse in BDSM test groups as they are in the control group, the normal population. We have this assumption that they must have had this bad shit happen to them if you want those things. And so therefore everyone in that world is like there's a disproportionately high number of fucked up people there. But actually what they can say is like actually we tested them and they're exactly the same as the real world. What they did discover though was that in dominant and submissive dynamics that dominance, there is a higher number of dominants who identify as having a secure attachment than in the normal test group and there is a higher number of people that identify as submissive who has anxious attachment than the normal group of people. And that doesn't surprise me at all because the nature of a dominant submissive dynamic is very, very, very soothing to an anxious attached person to feel like you have a place, you belong, you're owned, you're secure, you've got that tether, you're not going to lose the love and that the person in control has that security and that stability and is able to create the rules and create the environment that provides the relief and the soothing to an anxious attached person. That's just my personal interpretation of that data. But so on one hand, I'm answering this by saying it's normal. These desires that we have are incredibly normal. You look at the evidence that we have where people's fantasies have been surveyed and majority of people have fantasizing about the same things it's just that the people that choose to embrace these things and create them as a physical experience get told that they're fucked up but if you're just thinking about it and no one knows about it you can get away with it and no one has to know that you're fucked up so the other side of the coin is that maybe we're fucked up we are what we are we don't get to choose where our eroticism developed we had life experiences that formed our erotic nature and we cannot deny that. It's just who we are. So if someone has an eroticism for some, maybe they had a a childhood 
uh, toy or blanket that brought them a lot of comfort and the textile nature of their sensuality is very responsive to that because that particular texture brought them a lot of comfort or sensation as a child. And so now as an adult, they love to have clothing on that that stimulates that sensation or they like to wear, you know, lingerie or latex or something that has some sort of sensory experience because as part of their develop, normal childhood development and learning about the world around them that the sensation brought something to them. So it just is what it is. If, if we are fucked up, well, we're fucked up. And how fucking fantastic that we can move into this in a very sex-positive way where it is very consensual and it is negotiated and it's what people want to experience. And if that brings them something in their life that they don't have elsewhere, then that's a fucking fantastic thing. When these things are denied and when these things are shrouded in shame and guilt and judgment, and people choose not to embrace it, that's when it becomes the problem. That's when we see it used in destructive ways against others. That's when we see people choosing to partake in criminal activity to express or or achieve something because they haven't owned it. So this kind of comes back to the shadow question that we just answered as well. It's like if you can just embrace it, this is part of who you are, then you can use it in that constructive way. So now in the past episode, I was talking about being a masochist or identifying that part of me inside that wants to be hurt. And I'm triggered as fuck by other masochists. Like I can't help but judge someone that identifies as that. Like it's still complex inside of me. I don't project that judgment onto others. I do my very best to keep that self-contained, but I feel it inside of me, a misunderstanding about why someone would I want to identify like that. To me, I've almost rationalized it in my mind or it's ha- I have to make it okay with me by saying that only my lover can do that to me because he loves and respects. Like I, I need to put these circumstances in place in order to accept that part of myself. And so without that context and I just see masochism as, as a standalone thing for someone else, I'm s- fucking scared again. <laughs> I misunderstand and I judge it and I hate it and like ah, it triggers my sense of unsafety. So I know that safety is like this key that you put in my erotic brain that starts the fucking engine (laughs) and unlocks all of my eroticism. If you pull out that key, everything shuts down and it can shut down very instantaneously if I feel unsafe. So for me, in order to access that part of my eroticism that includes masochism, safety is absolutely fundamental. So when I look at someone else and it doesn't have that key of safety obviously straight in my face right there then it becomes the trigger so I know that it just tells me there's more of my own work to do if I see anything outside of myself that I'm judging or that I'm shaming or that I'm uncomfortable with that other people are consensually choosing for themselves and identifying as themselves and it has nothing to do with me then that's a hundred percent my work so it's amazing for the the person that submitted this question is like, you're, you're stepping into that space where you are finally open and that you are accepting of what others do. That's amazing progress. And you should be so happy and proud of yourself that, you know, we are undoing the conditioning that has been 
given to us against our choice and has taken away our sexuality from the beauty and the freedom and the bliss and the sacredness and the sensuality and the whatever it holds for us. It doesn't even have to be those things. <laughs> it all got robbed of us. So for you to be able to reclaim it now and start to take these parts back, that is already such a massive step. And just know that as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into these realms, that there will always be some misunderstanding and some distortion. And these all these questions line up so fucking well because this is taking us back to the very first question is to expect these things in our psyche, is to look at this work and get excited because this means that there's growth. This means that there's expansion. We could not grow and we could not expand without it, so bring it on. Feels like shit when you're triggered. I'm navigating some deep, 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 deep triggers myself this week that I will definitely record a podcast about soon because it is powerful to on one hand be in a place where I feel like, oh, fuck, I'm so solid within myself. I feel so good. I'm not feeling secure in any way. And then this thing goes off and it grips you and it takes over your nervous system and hijacks your entire body. And all of a sudden I want to get a sword out and I want to fight everybody off and like hold everybody back. And I just become this like <laughs> incredibly defensive hurt creature that like is petrified and panicked on the inside. I'm like, whoa, that is not the errand that I know. But that's the power of trigger. And especially if you've got trauma, like it can be deep. So I'm working through that at the moment and I'm excited to heal some of that stuff and then share some of that stuff with you because it's a very normal experience for all of us. And you sometimes forget if you don't do the work or if you stay in your comfort zone for a while, it gets really comfy there and it's cushy and you like it and you kind of can't relate to other people getting triggered about stuff because for you, that's fine. And then next thing you know, boom, (laughs) the universe kicks your ass and puts you right back into your work and reminds you to have compassion for the triggers because they're not easy, but they're worth doing the work for. Absolutely. All good things happen on the other side. So the other news that I want to share with you is that the next round of my sexuality course worship is going to launch soon. And I'm so excited. We're going to kick off in January. So we'll be taking enrollments from mid-December to mid-January. And this has been the most mind-blowing, life-changing course. And when I launched it for the first time, I believed in it. That's why I put it out there. But now I have such unwavering certainty and belief about the life-changing transformative power of this work and I'm so fucking excited to take others on the journey with me so keep an eye out I'll be releasing more information via podcast and via Instagram to invite you guys into worship and I have another amazing course coming up next year as well called leadership and you will be hearing more about that on an episode very 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 soon so amazing things in the works for us to kick off 2021 with a bang and reclaim more of our power and more of our joy and more of our satisfaction and all of the good things that come from doing this work. This is what the payoff is. (laughs) So I really hope you've enjoyed this episode and always I'd love to hear from you. Please share any questions, any takeaways, any challenges that you have. I'm here. So the best place to find me is Instagram or via my website, erinkiner.com. If there's something you'd like to hear about, if there's someone you want me to interview, just let me know. If you love this episode, please share it with someone that you think would love it also and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
I love you all with all of my heart and I will speak to you all soon.